of God's Word, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. The Gospel of John, chapter 19. We will read together this morning, verses 17 through 30. John chapter 19, please follow along as I read verses 17 through 30. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, but the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Can I ask that we pray once more? Let's pray. Father, now as we consider John's account of those final hours, final moments of the life of the Lord Jesus before he said those words, it is finished, bowed his head and gave up his spirit, we pray, Father, that you would give us a sense of the gravity of this text and the very grave and profound and wonderful truths that arise from it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was promised long ago, just moments after mankind had fallen in the garden, that a son of Eve would one day come to crush Satan's head. Some years later, it was anticipated in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament That some greater sacrifice had to come to make atonement for the sins of God's people. It was promised a few centuries later that a son of David would come to be the king of the Jews, to establish his kingdom and to reign forever over the house of Israel. It was said a few hundred years after that in Isaiah's prophecy that the servant of the Lord would come. And he would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. And that this one, this servant of the Lord, would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. It was said that God would send forth his servant and the Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all. All we who, like sheep, had gone astray and had turned every one from his own or to his own way. We arrive this morning at that which the Old Testament anticipated. We also arrive at everything John's gospel has anticipated and has been moving toward for 19 chapters. 
we've arrived at the climax of the gospel. That great hour, that great task and mission that God sent His Son to accomplish, always anticipated in the gospel, now completed. The proclamation of John the Baptist in the very first chapter now comes to fruition. What did John say as he, as he saw the Lord before him? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now that prophecy of John, if you will, is coming to completion. So here is this climactic event, the death of the Lord Jesus in the place of sinners. We have the great work of atonement, that thing for which Jesus came into the world. And yet, John's account of this momentous event is strikingly brief and provides almost no commentary on the event's significance. I mean, isn't a bit surprising if you've been with us in this series on John's gospel, you know we've been moving toward this. Really, almost everything in John's gospel has been anticipating this moment, and then when it comes, just a few verses, just remarkably brief in John's account. Other gospel writers, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sometimes referred to as the synoptic gospels, other gospel writers, for their part, include much more information. On average, they're twice as long as John's account and their account of the crucifixion, uh, sometimes encompassing an entire chapter. And they include lots of details that John himself doesn't include. Here's just a sampling of some of those details. Uh, first of all, the other gospel writers include that um, though Jesus did carry his own cross, as John says, somewhere along the way became too heavy for him, and Simon of Cyrene is enlisted to help him carry his cross. Uh, along the way, apparently, some offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. John doesn't include that detail. In the other gospel accounts, the various time markers that sort of divide up the time of Jesus on the cross are far more prominent. They talk about what happened at the third hour and the sixth hour and the ninth hour. John is not as consumed with chronological time markers. The other gospels include Jesus' dialogue with those robbers on either side. Uh, John says that he was crucified between two robbers, but doesn't include his dialogue with them. Of course, uh, Jesus says to the one those beautiful words, this day you will be with me in paradise. It's not recorded in John. Uh, Jesus' words from the cross to those who cast lots for his clothing, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We don't have recorded the various things that those who were crucifying Jesus said to him as he was on the cross. If you really are the Son of God, why don't you save yourself? Look, this man is calling for Elijah. Let's wait to see if Elijah comes, not recorded in John. Well, Jesus cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness that descends upon the earth from the sixth to the ninth hour, the record of the curtain being torn in two from top to bottom, the earthquake, the tombs opening up, and of course those words from the centurion, this was indeed the Son of God. None of those details are featured in John's account, though they're in the other gospel accounts. John's account, on the other hand, is remarkably terse. It's quick. It's direct. It's driving at a climax, a point. And yet it's in John's very short, very brief account that we have recorded a detail that's not recorded in the other gospel accounts that may be, to Christian people throughout the ages, one of the most precious details of all when we think of Jesus' work on the cross. I'm referring John 19, verse 30, and those words Jesus says right before he bows his head and yields up his spirit, what does he say? In Greek, it's one word, tetelestai. In English, it's three. It is finished. Do you know it's only in John we have those words? How precious those words are to believers. I want us to to arrive at those words this morning and to, to focus on the relevance of those words for Jesus' mission and also for our soul's sake. But I don't want to miss the details that, that lead up to that statement from the Lord Jesus. See, I, I think there's a very particular reason why John is the one who records these words. There's an emphasis, there's a theme in John's gospel that, that sort of climaxes in verse 30 with Jesus' words, it is finished. So, I want to get to those words, but I want us to not miss the other details leading up to Jesus' final words there on the cross. So I want to just walk through the text and arrive eventually in the middle 
toward the end of the sermon at verse 30. So let's just go verse by verse. We have in verses 17 through 22, I won't reread those verses, but essentially, Pilate writes on the cross those words, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, and this, this um, leads to uh, a, a, a conflict, a confrontation between the Jews and Pilate. They don't want him to write that. They would prefer that he write, this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. Now, some people think, we saw last week in Pastor Lichow's exposition of, of 30 or so verses before this passage we're considering this morning, that Pilate in some ways was conflicted at different points. And after all, he didn't really want to crucify Jesus. And in some ways, his arm was twisted into giving Jesus over to the Jews to be crucified. And some people think perhaps here as Jesus, excuse me, as Pilate writes these words on Jesus' cross, this is him sort of expressing some sort of faith. Well, that's not it at all. That, that, that wouldn't be right. Mark includes the detail that this was the charge that was written on the cross. It was customary, apparently, to write the charge for which someone was being crucified, to, to put that, inscribe that, on the instrument of execution, on the cross in this case. And so Pilate is doing nothing other than adhering to the, the laws of his day. He's writing the the charge, the reason why Jesus is being put to death. And he writes, the king of the Jews. And, and I think the reason he does that is, is one last subtle attempt at giving a jab to those Jews who had twisted his arm and, and forced him to carry out this whole affair against his will. He felt manipulated and cajoled into this. And so he writes on, on, on Jesus' cross, this is the king of the Jews. In some ways, I think sneering at the Jews, mocking the Jews. They just said a moment ago, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate is in a sense saying, yeah, behold your king. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. They don't want him to write that, but he says, what I've written, I've written. This is his last attempt at a resentful jab toward those Jews who had forced him into this whole affair that he would have wished to avoid. But anyone who has been reading the Gospel of John, certainly any Christian person, who's familiar with the Bible, can see in this whole affair deeper significance. There's a couple things we can see here. First of all, Jesus is the King of the Jews. He is the King of the Jews. He's the son of David who was promised beforehand, long beforehand, who would reign on his father's throne forever. He is the King of the Jews. And more than that, we know this side of the cross, that it was the death of Jesus itself, it was the cross itself that was the the way by which Jesus ascended the throne. Jesus didn't come with fanfares from above. He didn't come with pomp and circumstance. He fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah that said, Behold, Israel, your king coming, riding on the colt of a donkey. He came in humble ways and meek ways, and he came to suffer and to die, and it was the cross itself that was the means by which Jesus would ascend to the throne and inaugurate his rule over the world. We worship we serve a crucified king, one who has come in fulfillment of, of long-foretold prophecy, one who has come to die for the sins of his people and through his death to take the throne. But we should also see what has been a very large theme in John's gospel already, and that is that this is how the Jews treated their king. The Jews rejected their king. When their king came, how, how did they treat him? And we should see with those words from the Jews, we have no king but Caesar. And don't tell us this man is our king. He said he's our king, but he's not our king. We won't acknowledge him as such. We should see that, that Israel's apostasy is complete. The rejection of Jesus is complete. Do you remember what the opening words of John's gospel said in that prologue? He came to his own, and his own received him not. And this is sort of the climax of that rejection. We will not have him as our king. Don't you write that on his cross. In this event, the apostasy of those Jews is complete. Now look at verse 23, if you would. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, meaning you couldn't easily divide it. It was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, 
but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. The Lord of glory is being crucified and they're playing a game. Now, if that seems shocking and callous, it's because it is shocking and calloused. But this is not simply recorded because this is so shocking and so calloused and so wicked of these men. This is recorded, John tells us, to fulfill the Scriptures. It's recorded to show us that predictive prophecy from a thousand years earlier was actually being fulfilled in these events. And so... So there's this quote in John's account from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 foretells of the suffering of the Messiah. It's a messianic psalm. And there in Psalm 22 we read in verse 16, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. The idea is, we think that Jesus was so emaciated at this point. The cat of nine tails that had lashed his flesh and pulled it off actually removed the flesh from the bone. And it's very likely that some of Jesus' bones were even exposed by this point. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. And then verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So, so, so these, these men perpetrating this great injustice on Jesus, they thought they were just playing a game, having fun at Jesus' expense. Meanwhile, predictive prophecy from a thousand years earlier was being fulfilled. Just think about that. A thousand years before these events ever happened, it was written in Psalm 22 that these things would transpire just as they did. Jesus would be stricken, he'd be smitten, he'd, he'd have his bones exposed, there'd be dogs and evildoers who encircle him, and they were going to cast lots over his clothing. And I love how, how the verse ends. It says, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. It quotes Psalm 22, verse 18, and it says, so the soldiers did these things. They didn't do these things because they thought they would just have a fun time. They did these things because God pre-appointed that they would. God designed that this was going to happen. His son was going to die, and he was going to die in precisely this manner. And even those dogs and evil doers who encompassed the Lord, they were there by divine appointment and by 1,000-year-old predictive prophecy. All right, now on to verse 25, but standing by the cross. I think we're meant to see a contrast there. Here's the dogs encircling the Lord. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. I think that's four women. His mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, three Marys there. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and we believe that's John, that reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's going to come up a few more times in the remaining chapters, and most commentators believe that's John. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John is the only one who records this detail here, and I don't know precisely why John records this detail. I mean, if it is John who is the beloved disciple, then he's recounting a very personal experience. This might be him saying, I was standing there too, and Jesus said this to us when we were there at the cross. Well, I don't know exactly what significance we're to see in this, except to say this, isn't it precious that as Jesus is there dying for the sins of his people, as he's there suffering under the wrath of God, as he's there dying for Mary's sins, his own mother's sins, he still is caught up in her need. He's still concerned about her. Even from the cross, he's tending to his sheep. And he sees his mother there. Remember, he's dying for her sins and for the sins of millions of others. And he looks on her and he thinks, now how will she be taken care of? Presumably Joseph was dead at this point. Jesus is dying himself. He will return to his father. And he's concerned. He's caught up in the needs, the material needs of his mother. And so he says, woman, woman, I've made provision for you. Behold, 
your son. I'm commissioning this brother, my disciple, to take care of you from here on out. Isn't that a sweet thing? That Jesus, in his hour of agony, as he drinks the cup of God's wrath, he's still others-oriented. He's still thinking about those who are sitting around the cross. The the Lord is is such that he says uh, to his Father, with those who are there casting lots over his clothes, Father, forgive him, for they know not what they do. A wonderful way to pray for our enemies. And there he sees his mother standing by, and he commissions his disciple to care for her, to take care of her. One other thing I think we can see in this, I don't think it's the main reason this is placed there, but I think it's something sweet that we can see in this brief detail that's recorded. The New Testament writers, especially the writers of the epistles, open up in a major way this idea that God's people, the church, is the family of God. We're brothers and sisters. We're united to one another. We belong to one another because we all belong to Christ. Because we're united to him, we're united to one another in in one family. And, And the seeds of that, Jesus doesn't develop that idea in a major way in his teachings and his ministry, but the seeds of that are present in Jesus' teaching. Jesus is there and his mother and his brothers are outside and they say, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside, they're looking for you. And what does Jesus say? Who who is my mother and who is my brother? It's those who obey my will. You are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters if you do my will. Uh, he, He instructs his disciples to think of one another as brothers, as family. And so I don't think it's illegitimate to see here, already Jesus is working out the expectations. Woman, this, this one, because he's united to me, and because you're united to me, he's now your son, in a sense. And, and John, this is your mother, your family. You're connected to each other. And John, you need to look out for your mother's needs. You need to care for her. In the family of God, we care for one another. And of course, the writers of the epistles will open this up in a more major way. But I think it's a sweet thing to see in this account. They're connected to each other now. They care for each other now. And John will care for Jesus' mother going forward. Verse 28 now. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Jesus said, we're told to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And the commentators ask the question, well, what text, what scripture is Jesus fulfilling here? What, what, what did John have in mind when he records this here? And there are a couple different suggestions. One is again from Psalm 22, and it would make sense since Psalm 22 was already alluded to, perhaps uh, again there's an allusion to Psalm 22. Well, there we read in verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. This is a narrative of the suffering of the Lord Jesus. Is my tongue sticks to my jaws. Now, why would that happen? Well, the agony of the cross was such, his life was poured out such, that he was so dried up that his tongue stuck to his jaws. He was parched. The agony that he was going through. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. That could be the illusion. That could be the reference. Probably, though, it's a reference to Psalm 69, verse 21, which reads, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, remember Jesus said, I thirst, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Probably the illusion is to Psalm 69, Verse 21, regardless of which text we prefer, regardless of which text is being referenced here, we should see that it was purposed long ago that the Son of God would be thirsty on the cross. He would suffer, his agony would be such that his tongue would stick to his jaws. He'd be dried up like a potsherd. And for his thirst, they would give him sour wine to drink so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now, this is not an observation clearly established in the text, okay, what I'm about to say. Got to go outside the text to make this point. But, but I, I couldn't shake this thought this week. Every time I read verse 28, where Jesus says these words to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. Okay, so, so in John's gospel, uh, wine, 
water, thirst, come up again and again and again. It's it's sort of a minor motif, a minor theme in some ways. The idea of people thirsting, people needing water to quench that thirst or wine to quench that thirst. That theme is found in a number of places in John's gospel. When Jesus is before the woman at the well in John 4, he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the well that the woman drank from, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And and the woman says to Jesus, please give me this water so that I will never thirst again and I wouldn't have to come back here to draw water. I don't want to thirst. Give me that water that can quench my thirst, that water that you alone can provide. In John 6, Jesus said to the crowds of thousands of Jews who were around him there in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. There won't be any thirst for the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In John 7, we read, Jesus stood up on the last and great day of the feast, and he said, if anyone is thirsty, if any of you thirst, let him come to me and drink. And now Jesus is here on the cross, and he says, I thirst. What can we see there? Is it reading too much into the text to say that on the cross, Jesus thirsts so that we would never have to. Jesus is here on the cross suffering the punishment that we deserve and and, and the punishment and the wrath that we will never experience because Jesus experienced it for us as our substitute. And, And here he experienced thirst being dried up, being forsaken of God. He says, I thirst. His vicarious thirsting so that we would never have to thirst that we would never know what it is to be quenched. This is actually something of the the theme of of the brilliant poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She has a poem called Cooper's Grave. Uh, Cooper, Cowper, William Cooper, the hymn writer. William Cooper was severely depressed, had chronic depression, and he died believing that he had been forsaken of God. He's a believer. He died believing that God had forsaken him. And, And Browning, writing her famous poem, I won't quote it for you, but she's there standing at Cooper's grave, and she's reflecting on the death of this saint gone before. And and the sentiment is that um, Cooper realized as soon as he got to heaven that, that I was never forsaken of God because Jesus was forsaken of God. Because Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? None of us never needs to be forsaken. I think that's something of the idea we can see here because Jesus thirsts on the cross. None of us need ever thirst if our faith and our hope and our trust is in Him. Well, now we arrive at verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, four or five people are probably wondering about this. Didn't Jesus reject the wine? Mark 15 includes that detail. Jesus rejected the wine. He was offered wine twice. The first time he was offered wine mixed with myrrh. That would have performed the function of a sedative. It would have numbed his senses. Someone knowing that Jesus was going to the cross, take take this, it'll dull the pain. And Jesus with that wine says, no, I won't take it. I will do this with my senses about me. I'll drink the cup of God's wrath full stop, full strength. And I'll experience every last bit of the agony. Here on the cross, he's offered the sour wine. That sour wine would have refreshed him and alerted his senses to everything that was going on. That sour wine, when it touched his tongue, he would be fully conscious of the agony he suffered on our behalf. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. This should not be understood as a cry of defeat. I'm done. I'm knocked out. I'm finished. You don't say tetelestai if you're being defeated. Tetelestai is a word of victory. It's a word of accomplishment. 
Like, 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 I've accomplished the work. I've finished the race. I've done the task. It is finished. It is completed. It is accomplished. In fact, this is the very word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, as he's nearing the end of his life. What he says there is, I have run the race. I've finished the race. I fought the good fight. It's a victorious word. I, I finished the race. I've accomplished the task. I've completed what was required of me. So Jesus here is not saying a word of defeat. It's a word of victory. It is finished. Jesus says it's completed. It's accomplished. Well, well what is completed and accomplished? What is finished? In the context of John's gospel, there's only one answer that can be given. It is that work that the Father had given to the Son to accomplish. Namely, the salvation of sinners through the death of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, on the cross. God the Father had given to His Son a mission, a task, a work that He was to accomplish. And everything in John's gospel has been anticipating the accomplishment of this task, the fulfillment of this word. And Jesus says here on the cross, it's done. It's finished. It's completed. I have accomplished my Father's will. I think that's the main reason why John is the writer who includes these words from the Lord Jesus, because John has emphasized this again and again more than any other writer, Jesus' indefatigable commitment to accomplishing his Father's work. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 6, he says this again. I have come to do the will of my Father. When Jesus is in the garden and Peter tries to defend Jesus, he says, Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Don't you understand? I've been called to this. Remember all that talk about the hour? We've seen that again and again. Jesus says to his mother in John 2, what does this have to do with me, woman? That My hour has not yet come. Why is it that the officers in John 7 and John 8 didn't lay a finger on Jesus to arrest him? In both places it says nobody touched him. They didn't arrest him, though they could have. He's right there in plain sight, could have made the arrest. No one touched him or laid a finger on him because his hour had not yet come. In John 12, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. What does he say there? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. This is why I came. There's a task I meant to accomplish. The Father has sent me to accomplish His will, to accomplish His word. And on the cross, Jesus meets the hour. The hour in which he bears the weight of the sins of the world. The hour in which he was pierced for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. Remember that line from Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The hour in which he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. The hour in which he became as a sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The hour in which redemption was accomplished. Propitiation was made and atonement was achieved. And what does Jesus say when it's all done? It is finished. It's accomplished. It's done. Satan's back is broken. Sin and death are defeated. And Christ's people are fully and finally saved. Let this gospel be proclaimed. It is finished. In closing, just a couple of implications for us. We'll come to the Lord's table in a few minutes, this was not pre-planned, but what better text could we meditate on as we come toward the Lord's table this morning? A few implications for us. What does it mean for us? What's the significance for us? In those words, it is finished. Number one, because it is finished, sin is fully and finally forgiven. Because it is finished, sin is fully and finally forgiven. Jesus' once-for-all perfect sacrifice on the cross is everything the Old Testament sacrificial system anticipated. Why did you have all those sacrifices in the Old Testament? Blood, blood, blood. 
the, the morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, the guilt offering, the day of atonement. We keep sinning and we need atonement. And day after day, animals are slaughtered. More blood, more blood, more blood to make atonement for the sins of the Lord's people. And because the Israelites sinned daily, there had to be these perpetual sacrifices day after day after day, year after year after year for hundreds and hundreds of years. And because the priests sinned themselves, they had to make sacrifices for their own sins again and again. Blood, 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 sacrifice, 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 atonement again and again and again for these sinners. But you have to think those who were offering those sacrifices, they had to know the blood of bulls and goats wouldn't actually accomplish anything. At the end of the day, not to be too colloquial about it, but something's got to give, right? They would really think that by sacrificing these bulls and goats, shedding the blood of these animals, that we're going to be made right with God and have our sins fully and finally forgiven? Well, it's with the death of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that everything these sacrifices pointed toward is fulfilled. This is an oversimplification, but I find this helpful. As it respects Jesus in the Bible, it's all over the Bible, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. Jesus is anticipated in the Old Testament. He's revealed in the Gospels. He's preached in Acts. He's explained in the epistles, and he's expected in Revelation. He's revealed in the Gospels. He's explained in the epistles. Many of the epistles are reflecting back on this great work that Jesus had done, this great work of atonement, right? All John records is, it is finished. He doesn't go off on a sermon explaining what all that means. But of course, the epistles reflect greatly back on this event. One such book is the book of Hebrews. Now, we don't know this for certain, but some scholars suggest that the book of Hebrews was actually a sermon. We have no way of knowing that. But if it was a sermon, it would fit, it would work to be a sermon on this text, especially Hebrews chapter 10, which is consumed with this idea that Jesus was sacrificed, and on the cross he did so in fulfillment of the Old Testament types, but did so in a way that was full and final, that was finished. So you can turn to Hebrews 10, or you can just listen as I read. I want to read seven or eight verses. I want you to hear how this writer reflects back on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Hebrews 10 verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, and then he quotes the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their hands. Then he adds, the writer says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And then the writer of the Hebrews adds, where there is forgiveness of these, sins and lawless deeds, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. In essence, the writer to the Hebrews is saying full atonement has been made. You know the song, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement? Can it be? Everything covered by this once for all sacrifice. John says it is finished. No more blood. No more sacrifices. As the writer to the Hebrews says, there is no longer any offering for sin. Christian, you don't have to make atonement for your sins day by day. You don't have to just sacrifice another lamb on the altar to make atonement for your sins. What are you going to do that's actually going to add to Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice for your sins? 
What are you going to add to that finished and completed work of Jesus on your behalf? It is finished. There no longer remains any sacrifice for sins. We have full atonement by the blood of the Lord Jesus. We don't need to add to that sacrifice. We don't need a representation of that sacrifice in some sort of sacrament. We don't need to contribute our good works to that sacrifice or some acts of penance to that sacrifice to somehow round out or complete what Jesus did on the cross. We have full atonement by the blood of the Lord Jesus. We have full and final forgiveness of our sins through what Jesus did on the cross. And we need to see that in these words of the Lord. It is finished. There no longer remains any offering for sins. Blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it, but Christ has done it. And there's nothing left to do to cover our sins. Children, do you know that word atonement? You hear us use that word? It's at the heart of the gospel itself. An atonement, you can think of it this way. Atonement means a covering. It's a covering. You ever stayed maybe in your friend's home and, and, and you're sleeping over and they give you a blanket, but it's too small. I'm a tall guy, 6'2". I've been in that situation. I got the blanket. It doesn't cover my big, ugly feet. That's a problem. I'm going to be cold all night. I don't have a full covering. I might as well not even have the blanket because it doesn't cover all of me. I can't be warm. I can't be safe under that blanket. Well, see, when the Bible describes the atonement that Jesus made for our sins, it's, it's conveyed as a full covering. It covers all of our sins, everything that would make us ashamed, everything that would leave us vulnerable to the wrath and judgment of God. It's all covered, every last detail. You, you can think about your sin as like a, like a, a mountain. So many sins, so many sins. All my pride and all my lust and all my hate and bitterness and envy and strife, all my impatience, all my lack of love, everything that would humiliate me if you could see it, if you could know it, just this mountain of sins. Jesus says, it is finished. There's no longer any offering that needs to be made for those sins. We have full atonement in what Jesus has accomplished. And God is pleased, he says, in that promise of the new covenant. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Some of us would dearly love to forget our sins. We don't like to remember them. God, in light of everything we've done, says, I will remember their sins no more said in another place, he will take our sins and remove them as far as the east is from the west. He will throw them into the depths of the ocean. You know that song we sing, His Mercy is More? One of my favorite songs. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Have you ever thought about that picture? Our sins are thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. The actual sea does have a bottom or a shore. Our sins are thrown into a sea without bottom, meaning you can't scuba dive down to the bottom and find them. They're not sitting there under a lot of water. They're thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. My sins aren't going to wash up on the beach like a dead body or something. Now, my sins are thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. God's pleased to remember our sins no more. He's pleased to pardon and forgive us. In these words, it is finished. We should see that sin is fully and finally forgiven. Our sins are covered. Atonement is made. God is propitiated. And His wrath is no longer toward us. He's pleased to look on us and His Son and fully and finally forgive us of our sins. What's the application for us? Now, what a lousy preacher I would be if on a sermon on the words, it is finished, I gave you eight things to do, right? It's, it's done. Here's the application. I'll just quote J.C. Ryle. We rest our souls on a finished work if we rest them on the work of Jesus Christ the Lord. We need not fear that either sin or Satan or law shall condemn us at the last day. I love this. 
we may lean back on the thought that we have a Savior who has done all, paid all, accomplished all, and performed all that is necessary for our salvation. Brother, sister, lean back on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Rest in what the Lord has done to atone for your sins. It's finished, brother. It's finished, sister. Christ has accomplished redemption for us. I really am out of time. I had two other implications. I'll just state them, okay? Because it is finished, secondly, believers are saved to the uttermost and will never fall away. Will be kept, will never fall away because it is finished. And the writer of the Hebrews goes there, doesn't he? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God because he ever makes intercessions for them. And a few verses later, it says, for he's offered up himself once for all to bear the sins of many. The third point was going to be this. Because it is finished, and then I'm quoting now from Hebrews 9, Christ will come again a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save all those who are eagerly waiting for him. Because it is finished, he will come again a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save all those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let me just read, read the passage I'm getting this from, Hebrews 9, verse 26. But that as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. To put away sin. Get it out of the room. Put it away. Snuff it out like a candle. He appears to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, each one of you, if Christ tarries, will die and after that will come the judgment. Then we read verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What's the idea? He's, he's come once already. Why did he come the first time? To deal with sin. To put it away by the sacrifice of himself. To deal with sin. There's no unfinished business, in other words. There's no leftovers. He addressed our sin at the cross when he said, it is finished. He appeared once to deal with sin. He will come again when he comes, not to deal with sin. There's nothing more to be done. Not to deal with sin, but to save all those who eagerly wait for him. What does it mean for you that it is finished? means there's nothing left to do. Brother, sister, between you and God with respect to your sin, there's nothing left to be done. When Jesus comes back, he's not coming to, to finish that work he started in, in addressing your sin. It's been addressed. When he comes again, it will be to save you. He'll come to people looking to the skies with open arms, saying, come, Lord Jesus, quickly. Those who are expecting him, looking for him, who love his appearing, he will come and he will save them. I saw Hebrews 9, verse 27, quoted by Christians a number of times this week. Verse 27 says, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. At this hour, a week ago, Kobe Bryant died. It was utterly tragic, along with eight other victims of that helicopter crash, he died with his little girl, Gigi. And I don't know about you, I, I felt like in a funk all week about this. So sudden. There's a young man, he's 41, his daughter was 13. Dead. Suddenly. And, and lots of Christians, not inappropriately so, rocked by sort of the suddenness of this death that someone with so much life and vitality, so many accomplishments, could just die in an instant like that. And so naturally, I think this verse came to the mind of a lot of Christians. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after that comes the judgment. Young people, think about that. Doesn't matter how rich you are. Doesn't matter how many titles you've won. Doesn't matter how many accomplishments you have. How many people follow you on Instagram. How many people love you. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after this comes the judgment. 
I'm not suspicious now of the motives of Christians who were posting that verse, but I wanted to scream at my computer, you have to get to verse 28. Because there we're told about the Christ who died to bear the sins of many. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. But if you could be seen under the sacrifice, the atonement, the covering of the finished work of the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. And then when Jesus comes back and you stand before him at his bar, you don't need to be afraid. Your sin will have been dealt with. And he will come for you to save you. Save all those who eagerly wait for him. Know this, my friend. It is appointed unto you to die. You're going to die. It can't be avoided. And after that, you will face the judgment. But if you will cry out in repentance and faith to the Christ who died to bear the sins of many, the Christ who said on the cross, it is finished, the Christ who is content to take our sins from us and remove them as far as the east is from the west, to throw them into an ocean without bottom or shore, well, then you'll be saved. And then the coming of the Son of God need not be any event that you dread. Your own death need not be anything that you dread, but rather it will mean salvation for your soul. It'll mean that Christ is coming to save you. Christ is coming to bring you into paradise forever with him. Let's pray. Our Father, in these moments now as we come to reflect further on the Lord's death, now not only in word but in, in symbol in the Lord's Supper, we pray that in the finished work of our Savior, His body broken and His blood shed on our behalf for our sins, that we would see wonderful things in the finished work of our Savior for us. We pray that those words, it is finished would become so precious to our hearts for everything that it means for us that our sins, though they be as scarlet, are washed white as snow through what our Lord has done. May we make much of His grace and His love and His tender mercy for us. What He has accomplished in obedience to Your will, Father, He has done the work that You have given Him to do. Be pleased, Father, as You have promised to look upon His sacrifice Look upon the work of our substitute. Be pleased, Father, to pardon our sins, to cover us, to forgive us fully and completely. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.